Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Todd Kettler. Uh, Todd Kettler is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology in the School of Education at Baylor University. He teaches courses in gifted education and talent development, creativity, and individual differences. Dr. Kettler conducts research on access to advanced academic learning opportunities in schools, including access to gifted education. Also, Dr. Kettler studies learning designs that combine advanced content, complex thinking, conceptual understanding, and the development of intellectual character. His book, Modern Curriculum for Gifted and Advanced Academic Students, won the Legacy Award for the best scholarly book in the field of gifted education in the United States in 2016. Kettler's research has appeared in the leading journals in the fields of gifted education and creativity, including Gifted Child Quarterly, Journal of Advanced Academics, Journal for the Education of the Gifted, Creativity Research Journal, Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts, Creativity Research Journal in the Thinking Skills and Creativity. Dr. Todd Keller, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Michael. Happy to, happy to be part of this conversation. Yeah, we're, we're honored to have you. And, and we want this to be a conversation where anyone can kind of come in and, and learn from you and your journey. And, and that's where I want to start off. And uh, in your bio, I know you started as a middle school and high school English teacher. Uh, did you know on that first day as you walked into class that you'd be an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology there at Baylor? I, I promise you I did not. Uh, I was super excited to walk in and be a middle school teacher that first day. And I think I walked uh, out at the end of that day thinking this may be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it was uh, it was a great journey. I was you know, like any brand new teacher, you think you're prepared until you're there that day and you realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff they didn't tell me about uh, in the training. Uh, but um, no, it was great. I loved being a middle school teacher. I taught a little bit of high school as well. And uh, those were those were great days. And, uh, you know, what's uh, you know, what's uh, great, Michael, is one of the uh, students I had in that very first year as a middle school teacher. Uh, is now a director of advanced academics in a school district in Texas. How great is that? That's that's amazing, and that's an, a, a credit to you. And uh, well, I guess a big part of their educational journey. Yeah. But I'm sure that yeah. feels good knowing that you were a part of that. Yeah, it does. And uh, we stay in, we're in good contact and uh, uh, talk regularly about things gifted education. So uh, yeah. Do you do you think, especially going back to that time as a middle and a high school teacher, do you feel like those experiences have informed you on your journey here, especially when thinking about gifted or, or students with potential? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it absolutely did. Uh, it informed me in, in a number of ways. I'll, uh, I'll try to enumerate those if, if, if you don't mind. The, um, I think I learned more of the day-to-day, -day, what is it like to be a, a gifted kid in school, right? I can learn in theory about what it was like to be a gifted kid, but to see them on a day-to-day -day basis as I, as I taught those kids in my classes, I think that was uh, definitely giving context to the science, if that makes sense. Uh, then uh, I feel like I understood kids better because of all of those experiences. But probably the most important thing is I understand 
what teachers go through because I've been there. So a lot of my work deals with, you know, I, I work with a little bit with teacher training in our teacher education program. And I've done teacher trainings uh, for teachers who are already in the, uh, in the profession. Uh, I think one of uh, what matters is that I've been there and I understand how complex and challenging this ecosystem of a school is and, and how many demands are, are, are placed on a teacher on a, on a daily basis. So to try to help a teacher be better at that job fundamentally requires having stood in that position and experienced what that teacher goes through. And um, so I, when I look back, I, I think that I'm a better scholar and a better researcher uh, and advocate because I had those positions along the way. No, that's, that's excellent insight. And it makes me wonder too, there, there are times where I feel that there's so many great things from the, the, the field of gifted education being shared with teachers, but there's sometimes a struggle, I think, with teachers with taking that research and applying it like you're saying, and, and, and knowing that someone is speaking to the realities of the job. You, mm -hmm. you might have a great strategy to differentiate for, for, gifted or for gifted students, but it might be really difficult to practically apply it. Um, do you feel like you've, you've had to work with teachers in that space or maybe learn from that? Michael, I've trained hundreds, probably maybe thousands of teachers over time. And I have never come across a teacher who didn't want to do what was best for the kids in that room, including the gifted kids. Never once. Never once had a teacher say, no, just not interested in that. <laughs> I mean, it's the opposite. They're always really interested. But I've also encountered this, um, this system that makes it very difficult to do. Even if I say, boy, this is an easy strategy, you can take this and use tomorrow. They will get back into the, that, um, like I said, that complex ecosystem of the school. And it's much more difficult than it ever sounds. So some of my most current research is I'm studying teacher behaviors and I'm looking at all these facets that tend to influence teacher behaviors. So when teachers intend to differentiate, Right. They, they state, I, I intend to differentiate. I am committed. I've been to the training. I believe in this. I intend to do it. And then it doesn't happen. Like what, what happened in the process that prohibits it from happening? So that's like the, that's the current uh, phase of research I'm on right now, trying to understand, like I said, this ecosystem of the school and uh, factors that would influence whether teachers can teach in a way that they believe they really want to and should be doing versus responding to some demands that are coming at them from all directions that lead them. I mean, like I, I suspect there are teachers that walk out of school some days thinking, boy, I killed it. This was one of the greatest days. I, I killed it today as a teacher. And I think there are other days they probably walk out thinking I did everything I knew to do, but felt like I just kept hitting some barriers along the way. And, uh, and so I think that's what I'm trying to understand. What's it like to be a teacher trying to make decisions and perform your, your craft uh, in a way that uh, you've been trained and you are excited to do, even in spite of some of these uh, barriers that seem to show up? Absolutely. And I feel like there's a uniqueness to that conversation after the past couple of years where education has just gone through so much, where I'm sure there's several teachers who are just putting 120% effort into just getting through the day in some regards. Uh, so I, I can imagine that that research could be really powerful and eye-opening of, well, how do we, how do we uh, maybe get through that or kind of build the self-efficacy to fight through that? Yeah, I, I think part of it is um, 
well, I, what I don't think part of it is, is training. Okay. I know that may sound odd because you, everybody says, oh yeah, we just need to send them to more trainings. My experience, it's not the training. In fact, I've done the training and then walked into the classrooms of the very teachers. I'd spent like three months training and watched them not do what I taught. <laughs> and so I don't think it's the training. I think it's other factors that are causing them uh, to, to struggle to differentiate uh, uh, for gifted kids or for other, other kids, you know, just uh, differentiation in general. And, and some of those, for example, are uh, they're institutional barriers, meaning that sometimes schools expect everybody to be on the same page on the same day uh, as, they, as they maneuver very systematically through a curriculum. Well, that's an inhibitor uh, to differentiation. And another inhibitor to differentiation is simply the assessment systems we use. If we're using one, con like, you know, if everything is focused on the state test and all of the high stakes uh, uh, assessments relate back to that state test, a teacher struggles to, to assess gifted kids on differentiated learning. And if you're not assessing a kid on the differentiated learning, but rather assessing the kid on the standard curriculum, what's the kid going to care most about? Well, the standard curriculum, not the differentiated part. So the system continually pulls us back uh, in uh, uh, efforts to differentiate, uh, not because of anything the teachers do, or in most cases, not even their principal administrators. It's more of a, it's, it's like this just system that is such a strong pull uh, from assessment to uniformity. Um, so it, it's, I don't know, I, I think those are real struggles for teachers and, and real struggles for us to make differentiation a reality in classrooms. So even, so differentiation, if, even if everyone in the room agrees, the teacher you're, you're training, you as the presenter, their strategies shared, if the system still doesn't celebrate differentiation, and, and it's funny that that's the example in terms of you were asking teachers to differentiate based off the needs of kids, and yet the system wants that teacher to be on the same page as maybe the teacher next door who has different students. You know, there, there's there's almost an irony to that. Of um, it's almost like we can't allow, uh, in some circumstances, the mm -hmm. best practices to even happen in the first place. I think that's exactly uh, accurate, Michael. The, uh, I mean, and it's. And it's even more complex than that. Like I said, I think there are layers I haven't even under, uncovered yet. <laughs> but, uh, and sometimes parents don't want differentiation. Like they say they want differentiation until you actually in, implement some differentiation. And sometimes even the parents might resist. Uh, like I've heard, I've heard parents tell me directly, because not only was I a teacher, but I spent 12 years as a GT administrator, director of advanced academics. And I'd have parents come to me and say, well, uh, is my kid going to get a higher grade point average from being in the gifted class, which was the most advanced class? And I said, no, it's the same GPA weighting as the pre-AP class, for instance. And the parents would say, well, we'll just do the easier one. <laughs> I was like, well, why? <laughs> why would you do that? Uh, because what mattered was GPA. And at the end of the day, they were like, why would I take a harder class where I'm possibly going to have a lower GPA when I could take the easier class and have a higher GPA? And I, I, don't, I don't know, I, maybe because you wanted to learn and develop your talents and skills and enjoy the learning environment. Um, but sometimes those, those type of intrinsic motivators are, are really pushed aside in a system that rewards co conformity, compliance, uh, and GPA types of performance. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's super challenging uh, because I think, I think uh, there's a, maybe an understanding that you know, parents are wanting to set them so there's 
like you're saying, they're valuing, hey, we just need that GPA. We just need that grade. And, and, and you kind of understand that you want to play the game to get that. But at the same time, if you're talking about what's best for that student to, to one day leave education and, and have an impact on the world, you would think you would want to just challenge them and allow them to follow their passions and push them in that direction. That's exactly right. And uh, I, it's like I said, uh, we have to appreciate it as a complex system. You know, otherwise, any efforts we think of in our office or in our, you know, in the ivory tower of the university, any efforts we can think of to change will certainly fall short unless we can appreciate the complexity of those school environments. And so your journey has led you to all sorts of different roles. And you, you talked about it a second ago of, of being that advanced academic uh, and, and working at the district level in that capacity. Can you maybe kind of tell us a little bit about your history? And as you kind of went from middle school ELA to, uh, to Baylor, uh, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a fun journey. And I will say there were times when I, agreed to something or I would apply for something and in my head I thought boy I really don't even know how to do that but I think I can figure it out <laughs> so, and, so as I'm raising my own kids right now I try to tell them that sometimes you just stretch you stretch yourself you put yourself in a position to take a task on even if you don't know exactly how you're going to pull it off you just look in the mirror and say, I believe in, in, in myself to pull this off. And, and I think that was part of my journey when I, uh, I mean, I understood gifted ed uh, because I took some courses and I'd worked with gifted ed as a teacher. Then I got a job at the region 12 service center and I'd never done a teacher training or anything. Right. I mean, I was still, in fact, I was still relatively young for service center workers and, uh, and so I, I got that job and, you know, like within a week or so, they're like, all right, you're going to go do this training and the, you know, the 30 hours of gifted education, you know, fun, you know, beginning training. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll make some PowerPoints and some handouts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I would stay up at night, just reading deep into the night to think, I wonder what I'm supposed to tell them and how do I train these people? And, uh, but so I just, I did, I just sort of spent long hours figuring out how to do that and then worked and worked to get better and better. And I would try to read the room and say, okay, they like these kind of activities. They don't like these kind of activities. And oh, I got, I got better at that. So after a, about a year and a half of working at the service center, the other thing the service center did for me, which was amazing, was it really got me plugged in with TA and working with the other service center professionals. And so I understood like the structure of gifted education in Texas better because of that experience at the service center, because we would meet with the uh, director, uh, uh, the state director from the TA uh, office, and we would learn about the policies and the expectations and what the Texas state plan is uh, expecting school districts to do. And then I participated in the very initial, like when the, we were pilot testing the Texas performance standards projects. I mean, that was in about I don't know, maybe 99, 2000. I mean, I was part of uh, that program. And so I learned more about the structure of gifted education uh, in that, t uh, in that uh, service center role than I did at any other time. And I think that was invaluable. And, and it was, you know, interestingly, you know, I would end up being the chair of the Commissioner's Advisory Council, you know, 20 years later, uh, leading the charge to revise the state plan. So uh, I, I have taken that very seriously all my life but it, that started at the service center but the thing about my service center work is i felt like boy i could go and train people and then when i walk out the door they're like boy that was interesting 
now we can just go back to what we were doing yesterday. <laughs> and, and I always had this feeling that I need, I want more. I want to be able to train people and then walk into their classroom and support them on a daily basis. So that's when I started looking for a school district. Uh, and I found one that would hire me, even though I had no experience. I'd never been an assistant principal or anything. In fact, I tried to get an assistant principal job, like being in charge of like books and buses and things like that. I couldn't even get an assistant principal job, but I got a job as a director of advanced academics because I guess they thought this guy seems like he knows something about gifted ed. Um, and then in that role, I could, I, could, I could hold the accountability piece, meaning that we're going to try to assess student outcomes to find out if our gifted courses or our differentiation is working. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, listen to these teachers and find out what kind of training they really need, not what does an outsider think they need. So that was, you know, that was eye-opening to, to be able to be in that first job as a director of advanced academics. And, uh, and then I did okay in that job so, because you know, the, the second school district I worked for came looking for me and they asked wow. me, hey, what, why don't you apply? We, we have this new opening. And so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I got that job. And, um, and again, it was a different type of district, different type of challenges, but um, similar learning. Like I was learning uh, the, um, you know, how to make real changes. And, and that's not easy in school systems. Like I've already said, like they're very resistant to change. And um, so even some of, some of my recent work over the past couple of years, I've started to try to apply leadership, uh, leadership uh, models and uh, theories of change, like change theory, like how to make changes in a complex organization. Because when you look at the history of gifted education, I feel like you know what we're doing today in 2022 isn't that different from what we were doing in the late 1970s uh, in gifted education uh, programs across the U.S. So I, I think it's a good it's a it's a good moment to say. You know, let's take some stock of where we've been and really think about where we're going and not just keep doing things because that's the way we've always done it. In fact, I would argue that that was one of the biggest ideas of writing modern curriculum is to say, hey, let's let's look at this landscape and just push the, you know, nudge it forward a little bit, asking how we could maybe think of doing gifted education just a little bit differently uh, in a way that might be. Uh, a little more adjusted to kind of the the epoch that we're in, or the the needs of the students, uh, or or even the policymakers that are looking uh, and wondering why we keep funding this, right? I love that, and I, I think that would be a great area to to kind of camp out on with a second. So you've got a journey that basically informed you from different lenses of gifted education, so that as you're as you're more recently writing some of these books, you kind of know the different layers. You know what it's like to to be a teacher, to be an administrator, to be at the Texas level, TEA level as well. Um, <clears throat> with, the, with your book, Modern Curriculum for Gifted and Advanced Academic Students, just the title fascinates me based off what you're saying of a need for a more modern curriculum. So could you, could you maybe explain when you, because curriculum, I mean, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty heavy topic right there. We could just camp out on that word and what that means in gifted education, but, but you're not just saying curriculum, but a modern curriculum. So tell yeah. us, Tell us a little about maybe a, a, a basic of what what gifted curriculum through your lens looks like and why there is that need to have a modern nudge, I believe you, you called it. Yeah, I, I would say um, when I say I'm pushing that uh, toward a more modern vision, that's absolutely true. But there are at least three elements that are classic that I still cling to. I want to make sure I'm giving 
um, you know, doing justice for those three, but advanced content is always going to be important. Uh, complex thinking, meaning critical thinking, creative thinking, problem solving, emphasizing that the students need to be thinking and applying that advanced content. Then the third element is conceptual understanding, getting beyond facts and details and teaching students to think conceptually. Conceptual spaces are where complex problems are solved, right? It's not in the facts and the details, right? So those three things, advanced content, complex thinking, and conceptual understanding are all have our classic GT curriculum, and I still cling to those. I think where I'm trying to push the envelope forward a little bit is, is we've, more, we've moved uh, more toward talent development paradigms. And by talent development paradigm, uh, I think that it, uh, it means, uh, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship on it, people talking about it, number of books, papers written on it. So I think fundamentally, one of the ways that thinking of gifted education as the art and science of developing student talent, right? That's how, I, that's how I like to think of it. Art and science of taking student potential and turning it into some level of exceptional performance, uh, right? So that's, uh, that's the basic sort of framework of how I like to think of gifted education, that we become specialists at this process of potential to exceptional performance. Well, one of the, some of the things we're learning is, well, that's more domain specific than we've typically thought of. So in modern curriculum, one of the things we tried to really do, uh, I say we, meaning I as editor and I authored some chapters, but I also had some great chapter authors. We were trying to paint a picture of what more domain specific windows of gifted education might look like. You know, what does it look like to say, as a school district, we have a gifted language arts program. And then we have a gifted math program. We have a gifted science program. We even had a gifted social studies program, right? And you can go beyond that. You could do, you know, engineering. You could do uh, fine arts. Like they're, you know, the, the it's only limited by the imagination of the administrators and the people uh, running the program. But when you start defining that more domain specific, you do a couple things. You start opening up the door to say, uh, now when we identify students, what we might be looking for is students to fit these domain specific programs like you can be really good at math but maybe not that great at language arts and social studies and we've got a gifted program for you and then we could uh we could look at the and we could look at it on the opposite side like we have students that are great at language arts type disciplines but not so much math and science and we could put them in a program specifically tailored to develop their talents in those areas like to me, that's using data, that's using student profiles, that's using theories of motivation and interest uh, to understand what drives how students uh, allocate time and effort. Uh, and, and secondly, it allows us to uh, start defining domain specific outcomes. Like for instance, we might say, well, you know, in our language arts program, one of the, you know, one of our outcomes by the time you get to the end of high school, even using like the Texas state plan, which is, you know, professional level products and performances by the end of the high school graduation. Well, what does that look like in language arts? Well, maybe it's writing uh, articles to get published in your local newspaper. And uh, maybe it's trying to publish a, a piece of literary art in a student journal that's maybe a national journal. There, those outlets exist. Uh, maybe it's writing a screenplay. Maybe it's uh, creating uh, audio visual poetry, you know, something that's more even nuanced and new for, uh, uh, in, uh, for our students that maybe we didn't necessarily grow up with ourselves as adults. But when you define a domain specific program, you can have domain specific outcomes, you can have domain specific specialist teaching in that program, it changes the way you think of identification. So I think that brings lots of implications. But when I when I look at, you know, where we are in Texas, the good news is, 
the Texas policy, the Texas state plan, absolutely allows us to make these kind of innovations and adjustments to our program to meet these student needs. We're not locked into, like some states might be, with very specific uh, program design standards. In Texas, we have open-ended, we have principles that guide how we do gifted education by and large uh, in our state plan. So, so I think we're in a good place to think like that, but you know, so yeah, domain specificity was uh, one of them. That's, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, I, I love that you brought up the state plan, which is a guidance document for, for districts and expectations of what that should look like. And, and you're right, it asks for those advanced products and performances. And sometimes I feel like it, there's, a, there's a, a gray area to that that's hard to move into. And I feel like your, your content specific outcomes make a lot of sense and it seems very doable. You know, sometimes I feel like in, in the GT world, we try to maybe uh, try to implement uh, the, the, the performance standards projects, PBLs, or some of these great things that are good for kids. And I feel like sometimes teachers don't always know, well, how do I plug that in? And it seems like you're bringing a lot of specificity that's very doable in our advanced content courses. Yeah, I, I do think that um, specificity is necessary. I'm glad you, you focused on that term because what I've learned generally is that um, shooting for a vague goal rarely leads to great outcomes, right? Uh, shooting for specific targets that are, leads us to better outcomes. So like as a school district, I don't need, I don't want the state to define or, um, or the region to define. I would want a school district's GT staff, administrators, staff, principals, like sit down and say, what outcomes would we expect our highest achieving math students to attain by the end of 12th grade? What outcomes would we want our highest achieving science students? I'm talking about like, you know, participation in the Intel science uh, competition, right? That's the kind of like science achievement or math Olympiad uh, type of math assessment achievement. Those are the, that's how you would define these really outstanding outcomes. But what, while that may be the outcome in one district, another district may say, well, ours are slightly different, but we can still inform each other. I can look at your outcomes, you can look at my outcomes, and we can see how we have our nuanced uh, emphases across different districts, but yet it's still, it's still a local decision, but yet we can somehow collaborate. And like THET can be a great collaboration hub for us to do that kind of work, uh, for instance. But, but yeah, I think the specificity matters. Another thing that I'd like to point out that I thought was, uh, there, were, I, there were two other big deals that I think we talked about in modern curriculum. One was the history of differentiation is largely a history of failure. I mean, if you look at the research, meaning you can look at, I mean, countless papers that have been published uh, over the last 30, 40 years where uh, differentiation one has uh, very little impact on student achievement and two, uh, more often is talked about than actually implemented. Uh, so, so I, I think when I when I talk to a school and they say, "Oh," I say, "Well, how are you serving your gifted kids?" And they'll say, "Oh, well, we're we're differentiating in these you know mixed ability classrooms." My first thought is, "Well, the history of that idea is that it rarely actually happens. So, unless you're really deviating from the path of hundreds of school districts that have tried that in the past." <laughs> you're probably not doing a very, it's probably not working, probably not working for student outcomes, but it's the simplest, right? So, so I think what, what drives me crazy is to see school districts uh, choose to adopt what is less, uh, less troublesome 
if you will. Like, you know, the easiest way to do this is just to say we're differentiating. It's not written down. There's not, a, there's not much of a accountability system to see if it's actually happening in those classrooms. And we probably aren't even measuring student outcomes to see if we're having, uh, you know, an impact. Uh, so so we, we did talk about that. Like, how do we go? The, the modern curriculum was what I called sort of the post-differentiation era. Uh, and, and in this post-differentiation era, we were thinking more about writing clear documents that would define the gifted curriculum. So a teacher is not a curriculum writer of one, per se, meaning that as she tries to differentiate in her class, she's creating a new differentiated curriculum every day. Uh, or you could write one. And, uh, you know, my colleagues at Connecticut did a study a few years ago, and they found that uh, uh, 20, roughly 20 to 25 percent of school districts have a written curriculum for gifted education in language arts and math, the two, you know, primary disciplines and 25%, right? I mean, 75% of school districts don't have a written curriculum. So it's just hodgepodge. It's like teachers hoping to, you know, think of something, you know, to do the day before or as they're driving to work that morning. Uh, so I don't think we, we don't treat it like it's important when we treat it when we don't even write down the curriculum or create a curriculum. So one of the things that I would advocate is think, you know, actually creating written curriculum to define outcomes and um, what we're trying to do on a you know daily or weekly basis. And, and another thing that we uh, uh, that I particularly wrote about in modern curriculum was expanding the concept of differentiation to go beyond differentiated instruction. So what I'm what I want to think of is well, differentiated instruction has largely been a, a you know, minimally successful uh, initiative. Uh, differentiation theory is still at the heart of gifted education, right? So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not throwing it all out the window. I wanna be clear that I still think differentiation theory is at the heart of gifted education. So in modern curriculum, I defined four areas of differentiation that a school would think about as they're developing their programs for kids. And um, the first one is differentiation of the course of study. And a differentiated, a differentiated course of study goes beyond the day-by-day -day instructions. It would be such things, uh, so let's say, Michael, let's imagine that you're a student at my school and you're really good at uh, science. And in particularly, uh, chemistry is your thing. So uh, let's, so, so you would, uh, you could take like our middle school gifted and talented program uh, for advanced science. And then maybe we get you to your freshman year of high school and uh, we go ahead and put you in uh, the um, pre-AP chemistry class your first year alongside pre-AP biology. And then the second year you could take AP chemistry. And then your junior year, we have a dual credit program where you could take chemistry, uh, you know, one and two uh, in partnership with our uh, local uh, college. And then in your senior year, we have uh, organic chemistry one and two. So you could finish high school by taking chemistry all four years. Wow. And, 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 uh, and sometimes people look at me and say, well, that's not how it works. You're supposed to, I said, well, it couldn't work that way. There's no reason it can't work that way. Every structure exists for that to happen for a kid other than the tradition of that's not how we do it. And most people think, well, how do you do high school science? Well, you go biology, chemistry, you know, physics, and then maybe environmental science, uh, you know, the final year or something. And uh, so, well, you could do it differently. You could differentiate the course of study. Uh, and so sometimes people would say, well, how do you get that extra time in the schedule? Well, just be creative. Have kids take credit by exam for subjects they don't care much about. Or maybe they can take 
online courses that the school provides. And this is what we did in my second district where I was the director. We had this similar structure. Uh, so kids could take, you know, th you know, four college credits of chemistry or biology uh, before they graduated high school, uh, because we created that structure that you could pick an area and really focus on it. But if you didn't have an area, you could also, you know, pick and choose and, you know, and, and hopefully find what your target is. But when we found kids that knew, like we wanted to give them everything we had, we had kids that, uh, uh, could go through school and take uh, English and creative writing and journalism every year. So you could be essentially having like three language arts classes per semester because we differentiated the course of study. Does that make sense? It's different Absolutely. than just differentiating instruction. And then the second element was differentiating instruction. So we still had that in there, uh, but different types of models to do that. And the third element would be to tr actually try to adopt a differentiated curriculum framework, like those things I mentioned earlier, advanced content, complex thinking, um, uh, conceptual understanding, and then use either, say, you know, the uh, William and Mary uh, curriculum model, or maybe the parallel curriculum model, but some existing model as a framework to intentionally write the curriculum for gifted kids that says, this is not the standard school curriculum. This is different than that. And we've intentionally created it because we think it's important to have a written well-developed plan. So that would be the third element. And then the final fourth element is what I call authentic engagement. So that students would not only take courses in this differentiated course of study uh, with differentiated instruction and different curriculum models, but they would also have opportunities to engage in their field through mentor work or summer programs or competitions. Like for instance, uh, I worked with a kid that was super gifted in math. He's now earned his PhD in mathematics, but I, I, I remember meeting him when he was an eighth grader taking calculus at a local college. <laughs> and, oh, wow. uh, so, uh, and, and as, as I talked to him, I would say, you know, like, what were the most important experiences? He said, well, you know, school was great. And he was uh, obviously super intelligent and, and mathematically talented, but uh, he said, you know, what really mattered is that every summer I went to the, uh, the uh, Texas State Math Camp uh, down at Texas State University. So I did that every summer, even to the point where I got too old to go as a student, they would let me keep coming as one of the counselors uh, for the program. He said, and that's where I found my friends. Like these were the people that loved math as much as I did. And we did math that was far more complex than the math we were doing back in school. He said, that's where I really learned to love high level mathematics and see this vision of myself as a, as a mathematician. So that's what we call the curriculum of uh, authentic engagement or differentiating for authentic engagement. That not only does the school uh, you know, provide this rich learning in the school time, but we serve as a broker for these other opportunities. Like the, the school becomes uh, like this middleman that says, hey, here, we're gonna connect our really talented math students to this you know, summer program over here. Or we're gonna take our language art students and connect them to this creative writing uh, uh, contest so they can all submit you know, uh, their best work for this creative writing camp. But you become like a broker of opportunities so that these kids can have authentic experiences within, within their area of specialty. So does that make sense? Like to me, those were some of the really big ideas that we wrote about in modern curriculum uh, that I think give us this vision of what a high level gifted education as the art and science of you know, developing potential into exceptional performance could look like. And again, you hit the nail on the head at the end of, of if we're trying to, if the goal defined by TEA is to have these kids creating these advanced products and performances, shouldn't we put everything up 
uh, for review in terms of should we do, you know, do we need to send this kid to let's make it up an example, a health class that maybe they could test out of pretty quickly. Uh, should we send them, you know, for a semester or a whole year with that one, we could be giving them that extra creative writing class that's going to, I'm sure, improve their motivation, help them create those advanced products and performances. And, and, and hopefully, if nothing else, just continue to build that, uh, that thirst for, for wanting to be an expert in that field. Yeah, it, it, it changes our thinking a little bit to imagine that we would use things like credit by exam or online courses in areas not that are not student strength. That makes sense. Like, like a lot of people have this idea, oh, if we're going to do this kind of credit by exam, it's in your area of strength. You're going to test out of things. Like, no, that's good. I mean, you can do some of that, but also let a kid test out of the class he hates. <laughs> but, oh, right. but, but that's that's why I think it comes back to this fundamental understanding of domain-specific uh, approaches to gifted ed. So that when we, we start identifying kids from you know kindergarten all the way through, we're not just one, it's not just a one-time snapshot, but we're constantly gathering data on this student's performance and ability metrics so that we're, we're able to take that data and see where this kid's strength and interest actually lie. And then we try to tailor the program uh, in, uh, in a way that fits that kid's profile. Uh, and so I would say, you know, as I take, you know, sort of come full circle in this, the most recent book I published, which came out in um, March of 22 this year, uh, personalized learning and gifted education does a lot is a, a more of a you know boots on the ground how could you do this where you take these student profiles and turn them into more personalized tailored learning experiences and talent development yeah and I noticed in a recent or uh, in a tweet or maybe it was a little while back that you talked about personalized learning and and how it's uh it's uh, not just differentiation but going beyond differentiation and I think you've kind of you've kind of spoken to that this entire time and and I don't know if, if you're a teacher listening to this conversation, where, where do you even start? How do you, we're talking about structures here and the way we've always done things. And you, let's say you've just got a class right in front of you. What, what are some maybe uh, baby steps that a teacher could, could begin to walk with? I think the, uh, one of the first things I would recommend is finding a community of people that, you know, care about this and also in your discipline. So like you have like a, if you have a small team, so you're not ever trying to go it alone. So maybe it's a team of language arts teachers that say, hey, we want to figure out how to personalize and create these advanced outcomes that we're really defining and targeting for our students. Or uh, so, so one, look for, build a little team of, of like-minded individuals. Uh, but I think the next thing is uh, force yourself to, to answer the question, what is advanced achievement look like in my subject at my grade level? Right. So so, for instance, I would want middle school teachers to think of when what would it look like for by the, by the time a kid finishes eighth grade, where do I want that kid to be in math, science, language, arts, social studies, whatever the discipline. Right. Can you define that so that you have this image of what the end of eighth grade achievement would look like? And I'd say the same thing about elementary. What's the end of fifth grade achievement look like? So you have this target that you're working toward. So the gifted education is not this this um, this nuisance where somebody's hounding you to differentiate, but rather it's this goal-directed activity of I'm trying to take as many as possible students from point A to point B, which is this defined exceptional performance in my discipline at the end of say grades five, eight, or 12, you know, however you want to break down those sort of clumps. 
And then you just do backwards design from there, right? You say, okay, if this is where we're trying to get them, what do we need to do by end of fourth grade or into seventh grade? So, so you start just backward designing it. So you think of how can we create these opportunities? Uh, and then just understand that the, the Texas policy for gifted education, the state plan uh, provides a great framework. And, uh, and even Texas education policy is pretty solid in terms of credit by exam opportunities and our dual credit uh, um, you know, agreement opportunities that we make with uh, local colleges and universities. So we, we can provide kids differentiated learning programs. We just have to uh, warm up to the idea that we don't always have to do it like we've always done. Mm -hmm. That's, and that's just that line right there. I mean, that's challenging to even have that kind of peeled back of like, oh, we are just, you know, we just haven't, you know, budgeted a teacher to be here for that course before, therefore we can. It's like, well, no, actually you can move into that space or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever barriers there may, there may be. I'm sure that's, that's a challenging conversation for some to have. Yeah, and and um, you know, every now and then, Michael, somebody will ask me. They'll they'll say, oh, you know, let's say I come across someone who's, you know, oddly enough, got curiosity about what I do. They say, oh, you work in gifted education. That's like special education, but like you know, you know maybe at the other end. And I always say. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not like special ed. Like we are good cousins and friends with our colleagues in special ed. And we have some principles that are consistent across the two. I said, but I believe a better uh, analogy for gifted education is varsity athletics, right? Varsity oh, wow. athletics. Because you know what? Here in Texas, we understand varsity athletics. And I'm pretty sure they do in a lot of other states as well. But varsity athletics. And here's my, my classic story is like, the um, let's say you, you know, we're let's say we're looking at the baseball program. We have a varsity baseball program. I live in a community that has a great baseball team. We get kids from our high school team that go on to play college baseball every year. It's a great tradition. And uh, but the, our coach doesn't uh, make you know he's not identifying his you know his team in kindergarten. He's not identifying his team in third grade even, right? He identifies his team in ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, right? So, so it's this funnel. So it's a community where we may have, you know, 3,000 kids that start playing t-ball that, uh, you know, when they're five. And then that, that funnel just gets narrower and narrower all the way until you get to the end. And, and I think we, we've got to have this really welcoming uh, approach to talent where we are potential where we can say, let's, let's give as many kids as possible a shot. I hate identification systems that are about limiting opportunities. And I want us to ask the question, how can we think of identification as exposing kids to opportunities and say, hey, look, we're going to have an advanced math program. And what we're going to do in the advanced math program is we're going to do a lot of math, <laughs> like a lot of math. We're going to do problems beyond the normal assignment. We're going to stay after school and do more problems on a regular basis. We're going to come up here in the summer because we're going to have a math club and we're going to participate in math competitions. And I'm not going to give a test to find out who can or can't come. I'm going to invite everybody. And then I'm going to find out who the kids that really love math are because they're going to keep showing up over and over and over. And that's the exact same way it worked in baseball. Nobody ever sent kids home. They just kept, you know, sort of eliminating themselves from the pathway. And eventually you got the kids that really loved baseball. And if you said, hey, we're going to practice four hours a day, you know, during the summer because we want to be better at it, they would say, fine, just tell me where and I'll be there. 
Uh, and I think math is the same way. We find the kids that want to think that way about mathematics so that we, we can take potential, whereas potential is a combination of lots of factors. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, cognitive ability, it's interest, it's motivation, it's opportunity uh, so that we can bring these kids to the table and say, we're going to develop as many as possible uh, to these high levels of achievement. Uh, and we're not going to be crazy about screening people out. We're going to be uh, committed to inviting people in. Uh, so I, I think we could change the face of gifted education from an excluder to an includer and get a lot more people on board. Because it seems to me too, of you know, if we're bringing everyone in for, and obviously GT, you can, to generalize, you could say there's these advanced uh, accelerated pathways, there's these enrichment pathways, and obviously there's a lot of overlap in the midst of that too. But if we're providing that in a broad sense to everyone, if, if they're kind of what you're saying, if we find the student who's that advanced, let's say baseball, that doesn't mean the student who isn't a baseball advanced player can't find their other uh, pathway for them. And effectively, isn't that part of our goal in education is to figure out what that is so that they can go out into the world and do that at a professional level? Exactly. I think that's uh, exactly the goal, not to not to force kids into positions they didn't want to be in. When, when, in one of my experiences as, as a director of advanced academics, we had, you know, like we had developed some really great programs and I don't want to take credit. I had a teaching, a bunch of teachers who were tremendous. And, uh, and we, so we had this amazing middle school language arts program. I mean, it was, they were doing authentic research and reading and writing. And I'd have a parent every now and then coming, you know, say coming out of elementary, coming out of fifth grade, say, hey, I want my kid to be, and we use some assessments to determine if you went to the math and science track or the more the language arts track or some kids would do both. But those were not, you know, they weren't perfect assessments. They were like guidelines. So I'd have a mom come to me sometimes and say, hey, you know, my, I really want my kid to be in the, in the GT language arts program, but he doesn't like to read. I'm like, well, I don't think he should be in there because you know what they're going to do a lot of is read. And, and most of the other ones in there really like to read. That would, and, and, and I would always think to myself, can you imagine like going to the band director and saying, hey, I want my kid in honor band, but he doesn't really like music. <laughs> or he doesn't like practicing his instrument, right? So uh, I'm like, you know, if you're going to be in language arts, you know what you're going to do? You're going to read a lot. And if you don't like that, then don't do it. You know, don't sign up for gifted language arts because you want to have the bumper sticker that my that says my kids in the language arts program. You would sign up because you love the topic. So how can we create, you know, very clear? This is what you're going to do in the advanced math program, in the advanced language arts program, advanced science, so that kids would understand. And then you just say, hey, let's let's see who's interested, who wants to do this, because um, we we have these. We've had these adages that that, uh, that have been around gifted education for a long time, and one of them is, you know, gifted education should always be something different, not something more. And while I generally think there's a little bit of truth to that, what we also know about talent development is that the kids who develop exceptional talents at anything, whether it's baseball, you know, pole vaulting, or mathematics, or or language arts, they both do it differently, and they do it more. Uh, and so we're, we're actually starting to refer to this a little bit. Uh, and my team is uh, as uh, this concept of dose. We, we see people talking about dose here and there in gifted education, but it's, it's still kind of a new concept. But dose may be thought of in a couple ways. It could be the intensity of the curriculum, but it could also be the total number of hours. Uh, like, for instance, uh, there was a colleague of mine up at Northwestern University. They tried to create 
they tried to bring more students into their advanced eighth grade math program, which was taking, I think, uh, you know, advanced geometry at the end in eighth grade. So they were saying, okay, how do we get more kids into this program? Well, you couldn't just put them in there because they weren't ready. So they started backing it all the way up. You know, I think they, so they started somewhere in elementary school. And so they added, they figured out how many hours of mathematics uh, practice and instruction the kids got in a typical elementary program. And they, um, and then they increased that to 150% for this group of kids they're trying to catch up for the advanced math program so that they would be ready to take this advanced geometry class in eighth grade. So the point was, it wasn't about just doing it differently. They did more. So let's just say, for instance, if the typical kid does 200 hours of math in an average school year, these kids were doing 300 hours of math. Wow. See, see what I'm talking about in the yeah. dose is that, that it's common sense that if you do 300 hours worth of math instruction and practice versus a comparable kid who only does 200, the, the kid who does 300 is probably going to be more prepared at the end of the day. So, uh, so you start asking questions like, how can we make dose part of gifted education? It's the idea of like, if you want to be good in chemistry, I'm going to give you a strong dose of chemistry. You're not going to walk out of here with one, uh, one class uh, of advanced chemistry. You're going to walk out of here with five classes of advanced chemistry if that's what you want to do. So how can we create programs that build that type of capacity to give kids this like significant dose that would actually lead them toward more expertise and exceptional performance? Wow. And it, it seems like if that's going to be the approach to if we're going to increase opportunities for students who are, are passionate about that work, you uh, as a as someone in gifted education myself, you really have to do some work to make sure that there's some buy in and some collaboration that multiple stakeholders are feeding into that maybe that's parents advocating for some of this and being informed on what that is for their student. Maybe it's a, a interdepartmental within districts to be able to say look let's work together to provide those opportunities for kids uh, because I'm, 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 again, I'd imagine that the motivation in the kids probably would love that, but there's also those structures to, to help make sure that it happens and happens at a high level and, and isn't just practice for practice sake, but oriented towards those outcomes you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And remember when we first started this conversation, Michael, I mentioned, uh, you know, there are barriers that exist. So, so I think we have to do two things. We have to think about the barriers uh, that are obvious and the barriers that are subtle. And we have to figure out ways that we can uh, collapse those barriers or overcome those barriers while also clearly articulating this vision that is engaging, it's equitable, and it leads to advanced performances for kids. Uh, so uh, I, I think I think that's the way I think about gifted education when I get up every morning and go sit in my chair in my office is how can we how can we expose more kids to more opportunities and then make these opportunities so engaging that they want to keep coming back. Right. It's like uh, like, you know, the T-ball the coach is supposed to make baseball so much fun that the kid shows up uh, for uh, coach pitch uh, the next year. And then that coach is supposed to make it so fun the kid shows up for kid pitch eventually. And, and you just keep the kid in the system. Well, I think that's kind of how I think of it. Let's make math fun. Let's make math engaging. So kids come up to school and think, I want to be a math expert. This is fun. We're becoming math experts. Uh, and and it becomes this identity that they take on that this is part of what I do at school is I'm becoming a math expert or, or a biology expert or a chemistry expert. And, um, and I think those kinds of engagement will lead to motivation. 
Uh, and, and eventually my hope is that it would lead to the point where the kid would say, I'll take the hard class, even if it doesn't have extra GPA points, because you've, you've roped me in, uh, you know, because I'm disengaged and interested in this pathway now. But uh, when I, when I hear those stories where the kid or the parent says, I would rather take the easier class for high, high GPA. What that tells me is that we haven't given you a class that is so good, you can't resist it. Uh, but what if we could do that? What if we can give you these learning experiences that you just flat can't resist? Then I think we can, uh, um, I think we can overcome that barrier. So it's a little of both, acknowledging the barrier, finding ways to positively overcome it without having to you know, you know, change the structure significantly. You've talked uh, in, in, in your work about developing intellectual character, and that phrase really struck me. And I'm wondering if that's connected to what you're talking about now in terms of, uh, I think, uh, perhaps a student with high intellectual character would desire those types of experiences. Yeah, yeah you're exactly right, Michael. You, you, see, you saw that cr uh, connection uh, exactly as I see it in my head, that, that uh, when I talk about intellectual character, you know, just a little, little things that we know about, you know, typical school learning is that the average kid's going to forget most of the facts and the details of the curriculum, right? And gifted kids are going to remember more than average, uh, you know, maybe average ability kids. But uh, there's a lot of things that just get forgotten over time. And uh, if you don't believe me, ask any adult questions about geography. <laughs> <laughs> most, you know, most adults have very little understanding of geography, physical or human, right? But, uh, but so one of the things that I think we should engage in is this intentional development of uh, these intellectual character traits. Uh, and they're things like uh, curiosity and, and, and discipline and, um, and humility, right? That we never pretend to know more than we do. Uh, and and then even things like this commitment to evidence uh, and justification so that we hold our beliefs uh, in a way that we can justify them rather than not just because I heard some, you know, somebody say this on YouTube rather. And uh, so the, it's this idea that that's the learning that lasts. You know, if you build those, those character traits in these kids uh, as they move from children to uh, adolescents to young adults, I believe we're setting them up for an unlimited future uh, in a way that one more factor detail about the Roman Empire is not going to do, right? Right. Wow. Uh, I mean, this is this has been great and, and super challenging, and and uh, just hearing you speak to it now, I kind of think if uh, can you hear your uh, hear yourself speaking this to that uh, that middle school ELA teacher? Do you think <laughs> is yeah. there maybe a piece of information you shared today, or just in general that it's like? I would have loved to have gone back and just told that teacher blank. Yeah, I think that. Uh, and I also think I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and be a middle school teacher tomorrow with the knowledge that I have now compared to the knowledge I had then. Uh, I think I would have done it differently. And so I, I imagine every teacher's uh, uh, on a journey. Uh, teachers uh, are growing in their knowledge and experience every day, every year. And, and as they're on that journey, they're just, they're constantly getting better. They're better understanding kids, better understanding curriculum. And I, I mean, I assume I'm the same way. I understand it better now than I did in 1994, right? And uh, the, um, I, I would tell those teachers to uh, be innovators and creators. Uh, ask yourself, how can I make this kid find this topic fascinating, right? Just absolutely fascinating 
so that it is something that uh, he or she wants to learn and we're going to have a good time engaging in that curriculum, right? So, uh, and sometimes that doesn't mean you have to do, you know, you know, stand up and dance in the classroom. It means intellectually engaging kids of why this matters. Uh, I have this belief that uh, every teacher should be able to answer the why am I learning this question for every item in the curriculum. Because if you can't answer it, there's no way you can convince those kids that it's important, right? <laughs> so That's you true. have to be able to answer that question. Why are you supposed to learn this? And uh, so if and your I, answer is uh, just it was the next page of the textbook or it was, it was in the framework, I don't think that yeah, works for that's uh, not go, that's, No, it's not going to go very far. Right? Like <laughs> I, I, taught, uh, I taught senior English one, one time and we were reading Macbeth. And there's a lot of reasons I can imagine these kids in my room looked at me and said, Keller, why are we studying Macbeth? And I said, well, let's be honest. You're probably never going to speak or write in iambic pentameter. Probably not going to happen. I mean, maybe some point you might try this technique to, you know, get a date or impress somebody on a date. But, you know, in reality, iambic pentameter is not going to be part of your typical skill set. And you're probably not going to ever be the king of Scotland either. So, <laughs> so you may say, well, why are we studying Macbeth? And I said, we're studying Macbeth because of someday you're going to be ambitious and you're going to ask yourself, where's the fine line between being ambitious and going just a little too far and hurting everybody else around you? And that's why we're studying Macbeth, because I believe someday you're going to be ambitious and you're going to remember this story of ambition gone wild. That's why we study Macbeth. Not because you're the king of Scotland, not even because Shakespeare was a really smart guy, but because someday you're going to live this very human drama of ambition versus uh, chaos. And you need to know how you can be ambitious, but everything is still ethical and in control. Wow. And that makes sense to me. Right. That's powerful. And going back to what you were saying of, uh, in terms of differentiation and, and trying to get conceptual behind things and, and, mm -hmm. and having students see that and learn from that. Yeah, that's yeah, that that seems like powerful, a powerful way to to teach your kids. And and I feel like this has been so informative for for anybody in terms of just entering in and starting this conversation. And and to start to wrap things up, I've got a I've got a, a, a fast five questions for you. I uh, kind of built to get some short responses from you just to just to get to know you a little bit better and to kind of put a bow on our conversation here. Um, and some of them uh, may take a little bit more than a little bit of time, but uh, uh, a, little, a little fun to treat it that way. But uh, just a little rapid fire here. Uh, what are some areas where GT education falls short? Number one area we fall short right now is equity. And uh, we've got, like I said, I, I really want to see us open doors and where, where we see students as uh, for their potential, not for their deficits. And we need to look at every experience a kid brings to that table as a, a facet of potential. If a kid speaks two languages and neither one of them's English, you know what that is? That's potential. Uh, it's not a deficit. Uh, so we've got we've to think of talent and potential in a more inclusive way. And the Texas policies are absolutely open to that. I mean, if you look at Texas identification policies, all it says is you've got to have at least three sources of data and a committee to make the decision. It does, there are no cut scores. There's not even a, a classic profile other than you're looking for both performance and potential. And I think we've done a good job in Texas to find the performers 
We struggle to identify those who aren't currently performing at a remarkably high level, but show the potential. And that's where I think we need to really grow uh, and expand our opportunities. I love that. And I, I'm so glad you brought that aspect of the TEA definition of gifted up that a lot of people miss that or, or maybe choose to look past the, the potential part. But you're right. We could identify kids based off potential, which I think is pretty powerful. Yes. Um, all right. That's great. So jump into our next one. Who has, it's a pretty broad one, but who has inspired you? And, and maybe you could bring into this conversation kind of well, what we're talking about here and, and, and maybe whether it's a student who's kind of met the, uh, you know, what we've been talking about here, maybe one who's inspired you on your journey, but who's an inspiration for you in, in this line of work? Uh, oh, great question, Michael. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with uh, Susan Johnson, who was my mentor years ago. And uh, Susan believed in me more than I believed in myself, I suspect. And uh, uh, she taught me, she held really high standards for me. She uh, uh, talked very firmly to me when I needed it. <laughs> and uh, she made me a better person, made me a good scholar and introduced me to the various aspects of gifted education. So Susan Johnson, hands down, is uh, the, probably the most important person. Um, I also got to know Joyce Van Tasselbaska along my journey. And I think Joyce Van Tasselbaska is one of the greatest curriculum thinkers in the history of gifted education anywhere. And uh, she was she's also a great scholar of language and literature and classics. And, and Joyce has inspired me to understand what conceptual curriculum is supposed to look like. Uh, and I would say that my understandings uh, of how to design learning and uh, think conceptually about student outcomes uh, I would attribute a lot of that influence to Joyce Van Tasselbaska. Uh, I've also um, I've also been inspired by um, some of the great teachers I've worked with. Uh, it's uh, it's encouraging when I go into a teacher's room or I have a teacher on a curriculum committee that just pushes me to think uh, in more complex ways about their area. Uh, and so when uh, when I served my uh, those years as director of advanced academics, I would I would form a lot of curriculum teams and bring these teachers in, and I was always inspired by how talented they really were. And when you bring them into a room and say, "We're going to develop this amazing curriculum," and I want your ideas, and uh, and and they really started to trust me that I wanted their ideas. I wasn't there just they weren't there just to say this was a token like all the teachers approved, but rather I wanted their ideas. I found that inspiring and, it, and I walked away with this faith that teachers are, are great intellectuals and sometimes we, we don't engage them in the intellectual work that they ought to be engaged in. So uh, I, I really believe that it's important that we think of teachers as these, not just professionals, but actually intellectuals uh, in their areas. Um, so that I found that inspiring and, and, uh, and I was influenced by kids. Like I, I mentioned the kid earlier, the one that took calculus in eighth grade and he was so humble. He would he would go and do math presentations that none of us could even understand, but he would constantly keep inviting us to his uh, honors courses where he was presenting on some mathematical topic that we could read the entire title and description and just think, I, I don't even know what that's really about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I, I think over time, I, I came across these kids that changed my perspective of what advanced performance was. I, I, I met one young lady, uh, she was in eighth grade and uh, uh, her mother was very advanced, uh, involved in the gifted parent group, and um, 
the young lady liked to write and but she was very quiet like you know uh, uh, maybe a little bit introverted and uh, so the teachers realized that you know you're a pretty good writer you should enter like we had this short story uh, competition that was run through a, a gifted uh, organization and uh, so the, the teacher encouraged this girl to submit and she was really nervous but she just said all right I'll do it so she writes a story and she ends up winning first place in the category for eighth grade through 12th grade she wins she won first place uh, for her short story and then the next year when she was a freshman in high school she submitted also won first place a second time and wow. uh, and these are external judges that are judging blind they don't know who the author is and they were we the, the, the group actually brought in like people who were professional writers to judge so this girl wins in a five-year period between eighth grade and end of 12th grade she wins first place four out of five times and i'll never forget we were at some uh you know meeting with students and some students said i'm just so glad she's graduating <laughs> 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 she wins every year and that girl goes on to write and publish her first uh, novel as a sophomore in college and i think i learned from that that kids are capable of more than we even believe they're capable of and uh, and and she was an example of that as someone who knew what she wanted to do. And if I could if I could go back and say I could give you two or three periods to do language arts, I bet she would have grabbed that. That uh, the programs weren't quite developed enough to do that at that time. But that's what makes me think of these ideas of kids are with talent and motivation can accomplish a lot if we just create those uh, spaces in which it can happen. So I do think I was inspired by kids along the way. And, and, and I love that you brought up those students in, in answering that conversation. And, and that's going to stick with me, that phrase. Students are capable. Uh, if we're talking about maybe changing things for these kids, coming back mm -hmm. to students are certainly capable. So question three, and we'll zip through these uh, real quickly here. If I had to read one book uh, as, a, as an educator, as a parent, to get into uh, a better understanding of gifted education, where outside of your books, of course, uh, where, where should I start? Oh, man, that's a, that's a hard question. Um, or, or perhaps maybe just an author more broadly, you know. I, there's an obscure book that may be hard to find, uh, but my, I was friends with a, a gentleman named Larry Coleman. Uh, his technical scholarly name was probably Lawrence Coleman, but we all knew him as Larry. Larry was a professor at the University of Tennessee, and then he ended his career. He had a distinguished chair in gifted education at the University of Toledo. And Larry did a, an ethnographic study where he lived at a residential high school for gifted kids for an entire year. He lived in the dorm. He went to class with them. He ate with them. And he wrote a book on that called Life in the Fast Lane. And I think it's one of the finest pieces of scholarship ever written about gifted kids and gifted education. Uh, and uh, Larry Coleman, Life in the Fast Line, Proofrock Press published it probably in the late 90s. So if you can get your hands on it, that's a really good book. Um, other than that, I think uh, I've really, I, I'm, I really like the, uh, uh, paradigms and frameworks uh, book or frameworks I think it's frameworks of gifted education yeah. uh, like Paulo Shesky Kabilius and Tracy Cross edited but it's it's a contemporary book I want to say it came out in maybe 20 or 21 but it really tries to define these different approaches to gifted education and kind of the history of them and and, and why we would want to think you know big picture and conceptual 
because I think sometimes we get so caught up in the we do A, B, C, we lose sight of the, the big framework that we're trying to accomplish here. So I, I think that's a, a, that's a fine read. It was edited by Tracy Cross and Paulo Shesky Kabilias. My fourth question was, tell me about a student who, uh, uh, that you saw potential in, but I feel like you've nailed that question throughout our conversation, which again, I think really speaks to your character as an educator, that you are so student focused, that you have these stories that kind of uh, are proof of the pudding, so to speak. Michael, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to tell you one more. Please do. And uh, I was in part of this program that was amazing in the early 2000s. It was a, a grant that was funded. It was a, a federal grant that was a flow through and it was flowing through TEA. And what we were doing, it was, a, it was through the, it was like an AP advanced placement grant. Well, in Texas, what we had done is we, we had a group of people that I was in. I didn't get in on the first group. I was like in wave two. Our school was. But it was to take uh, native Spanish speakers in middle school and give them some advanced courses in Spanish, uh, including AP Spanish as an eighth grade course, like the AP Spanish course that most people might take in their senior year of high school or, or junior year of high school. We were going to have these kids take that course in their um, eighth grade year. Well, most people said that's not even going to work. Like the, even if these kids are native speakers, a lot of times they have really informal uh, Spanish. They don't have great Spanish grammar. So they're not ready for that AP exam. But you know what? The people that built that project said, well, give me a shot at it. Give me a shot at it because I think we can. So anyway, we did that in my school. We got part of the grant. We did it in uh, the school district I was working in. So I watched, uh, I guess, three or four cohorts of kids go through this eighth grade uh, AP Spanish. And every one of them, uh, they were native. Their parents oftentimes didn't even speak English. So we would have translators when they would come up to school. And uh, we had most of those kids score four and five on the AP exam. Uh, that's good. That's the good news. Let me tell you the great news. is I did this study where I wanted to find out did those students believe in themselves and continue taking AP courses after they got to high school? And what I found is that those native Spanish speakers who took AP Spanish, the, really the first time in their life where somebody looked at them and said, your Spanish language is a strength, not a deficit, right? And so these kids took more AP courses than the typical student in their four years of high school after being in our eighth grade AP Spanish program, all right? And that's a, that's a group that typically you didn't see in your AP courses, right? These EL students. But they took more than the typical student uh, in the high school that they were feeding into. And then I started interviewing some of them. And I'll never forget this day. I interviewed this kid at the school. And he was, uh, I guess he was about a sophomore. So he finished the AP Spanish in eighth grade, did some AP, like AP human geography as a freshman and uh, pre-AP English even. And so I'm talking to him in his sophomore year. And he says, he says to me, he says, uh, Mr. Kettler, when I first started this, my parents didn't uh, know anything about education. They didn't know like how to get, you know, me in this kind of get help me get into this pathway. He said, and I really didn't know much about what I wanted to do, but he said, I want to be a doctor. And I don't think anybody else would have believed I could do that until I got in this program. And I made a five on the AP Spanish exam. And now I'm taking other AP courses. And uh, I'm telling you, that's why we do this. 
That's why we have to look differently about potential versus deficits. Because we took a group of kids that people think are at risk and we showed how they could achieve if we meet them where their strengths are, not focusing on their deficits. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that day. I mean, I just sat there thinking, this is why I chose this profession. When that young man told me that he believes he can be a doctor and his parents believe that too now. And um, that's why we do it. Mm -hmm. Students are capable and man, they are, they are capable. The belief that they had because someone believed in them, or at least in part, uh, mm -hmm. that, that but it wasn't, I guess, yeah, it wasn't even that kid. Just, I mean, not just that kid. Like I said, I studied all of those kids and wow. watched their course taking pattern. And they all took more AP courses than the typical kid in the high school. And these, and it just blows your mind that you give a, you show some belief in a kid and give them an opportunity to flourish and they will continue that pathway. And I guess the inverse of if you show a disbelief in children, who knows the impact of that? Uh, exactly. Long -term. exactly. Wow. And our, our fifth and last question here, fill in the blank. The best way to foster student potential is? I think the best way to foster student potential is to find out what students are deeply interested in and then give them opportunities to pursue that with mentors experts and peers so finding what students are interested in uh, matters like like i said I, I believe in building out these profiles these personalized learning profiles so that we can carve out like it's you know it's 2022 like, like we've got enough technology and adaptability to carve out somewhat personalized pathways for kids and if we continue to do mass education practices even though we have the capacity to personalize, we're going to lose out on kids uh, uh, that we can develop their potential or foster their talent. So I think finding what they're interested in, have some strengths in, and connecting them with mentors and peers and teachers who are experts. Uh, and um, I think that's, it's a simple formula, really. You just have to agree that we can do that, even though the system is designed to do mass production. Dr. Todd Keller, it's been an honor. I've really enjoyed our conversation here today. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. I'm, uh, I'm forever committed to gifted education and uh, gifted education in Texas. And THET has been an important part of my life in terms of uh, mentoring and uh, connecting with the other people that uh, care similarly uh, across the state of Texas. And speaking of connecting, how can our uh, audience here connect with you? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find if you just look up, uh, uh, you know, faculty in the School of Education at Baylor. Uh, you, uh, you can find my profile there with my email. Uh, so I, I think that's a, you know, probably the easiest way to find me without trying to memorize some uh, address. I am a professor at Baylor, uh, Baylor University in Waco. I, I do. Uh, I've not missed a THET event since uh, 1999 in terms of the fall conference. So. You can always count on me to be there. Uh, and uh, I look forward to that. This, this past year, I also attended the equity event, and I, uh, which was in Denton, and I attended the leadership event down in uh, Georgetown. So uh, I think I'm, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm committed to THET and the mission it has to serve the uh, uh, parents and uh, teachers and students across the state.
Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Todd Kettler. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at renzulilearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12 and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.